Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Matthew, CEO of Ably, a real-time experience infrastructure platform that's raised over $82 million in funding. Matthew, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Super excited to chat with you. So just to kick things off, can we start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. Yeah, so I'm Matthew Redden. I'm actually originally from South Africa. I grew up tinkering with computers and didn't think I'd... Um have a career in computers, but sort of fell into web development and, and just loved it. And so, you know, I grew up in South Africa and what I found was it was quite early days of the internet that um, there wasn't really much going on in South Africa in terms of web development and things like that. It was like sort of late nineties. So I came over to the UK and I started my first business with a co-founder, so a company called eConsultancy. And we sold that about 10 years ago now. So eConsultancy was sort of like a subscription business. A bit like a mini Gartner, really, but in the digital marketing space. So we sold research and things like that. And I've been kind of always on the engineering side, you know, bearing from sort of CTO roles to CEO roles in various different businesses. But quite frankly, I love coding. <laughs> I love creating tech. It's kind of what, you know, really keeps me going. And yeah, and in the last few years, I've moved over to France now. So I'm living in the Alps and, you know, and Abley is a remote first organization. So it's all very, very possible, which is great. So I just finished reading a book on ultra running and a lot of it talked about the Comrades ultra race in South Africa. So I have to ask, have you ever run that? Have you ever watched that? Is that a a huge deal in South Africa? It is a huge deal in South Africa. Every year it's a huge event and it's from Peter Marisberg to Durban. So I grew up in Durban. So one year it goes up and one year it comes down. And yeah, no, it's a huge event. It used to kind of almost run past my house. Interestingly, now actually I live in, because I'm living in Chamonix, there's the UTMB. So UTMB is probably one of the biggest ultramarathon races. And that also goes past my house or I um, in France. So uh, no, I don't do ultra running, but um, it's some impressive stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised you're able to like withhold that, not go in, given that it's been running or two major races running right by your house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, a few questions that we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. So first one is, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? So, you know, for me, being, well, AB, we're a developer product for other developers, right? So we're quite a techie product, but, you know, our customers are developers. And I think because of that, I really admire the Collison brothers, the founders of Stripe. They did something which was really impressive, which was they centered around give developers an amazing experience and build a business off that. And they managed to displace, you know, incumbents that have been around people like WorldPay, who've been around for years and years and pretty much everyone transacted with them. And suddenly that most, and it was all because they believed that you know, if you give developers a delightful experience, then they will use your product. And that's all they focused on. And it was, um, I mean, quite incredible because what it really showed the industry is that developers, even though they don't hold the budgets, have buying power. And Stripe has really been you know, an amazing example of that. Yeah, totally agree. And a lot to admire there. What about books? And the way we like to, to frame this, and we got this from Ryan Holiday, he calls them a, a quick book. So a quick book is a book that like rocks you to your core. It really influences how you just approach life and, and think about the world. Do any quick books come to mind for you? 
you know, there's so many books and it's kind of weird because they all sort of, there's certainly, I suppose, of the, like typical startup type books that everyone reads. And they all have a lot to give. But I think to your point, there's two books that stick with me. I think the one is No Rules Rules, the Netflix story. I really like that because it really changed the way I thought about sort of ownership. You know, removing controls increases like people's belief that they own things and it kind of gets people to kind of make the right decisions. I remember in the book they talked about, you know, they removed the idea of having a budget for taking someone out for dinner, you know, taking a customer out. And I think, you know, the example was, you know, that they previously had set a limit of spend a hundred dollars on a bottle of wine and everyone would spend $99 on a bottle of wine. And actually they kind of took away the limits of people just bought a reasonable bottle of wine. And what they found was that it created ownership. People realized that they made the decisions and they had to own those decisions. So I kind of keep that, that thinking quite a lot in AB is that we try and, I mean, you don't always get it right, but we try and empower people to make decisions and own those decisions. The other thing with No Rules Rules was this idea about talent density and that, you know, once you get good people working with really good people, you get a really compounding effect, but one poor performer really impacts the whole team. And I actually had a had someone at Abley recently, you know, make comments to me saying, I asked her what she was enjoying about Abley. And she said, you know, it was the, really about the people she works with. And then I've got this question that I asked people as well in my sort of check-ins, which is uh, inspired by Ben Horowitz, which is, you know, what is the one thing you don't like about working at Abley? And she kind of told me the story about someone she had worked with in the team who who just kind of met the bar and didn't push the bar, right? And she said, like, what really energized her was like working around other people who were constantly raising the bar. And then being in a team, you know, in this project team with someone who wasn't raising the bar, just kind of drained their energy. And it kind of really reminded this sort of talent density idea of neural rules. So that's the one. And the other one is Amp It Up by Frank Sleepman, um, the Snowflake uh, CEO. And I talk about this all the time in the company. And the one thing I put out of it is incrementalism will kill your company. So it's so easy to fall into that trap of thinking, you know, constantly add small features and prove things, but you're, you really need radical change. You need to kind of be thinking far bigger than constant little iterative improvements in the, in the business. And that inspires me a lot. Like I keep using that to kind of look at what we're doing and say, hold on, is that, is that big enough? Like, are we aiming for the moon or are we just sort of aiming to get better at what we do? So yeah, those are the books that are really excellent to my brain. Nice. Yeah, I, I really love that book from Frank Slootman. I think it's very rare to have someone who's an operator who's you know actively running this big, massive company to be writing books like this and releasing books. So it was really fun to hear from that perspective, and you know, not from the perspective of someone who's you know just finished their career, retired, going into politics, or you know, trying to build their legacy and and writing a book for that purpose. Like this is very much a operational manual, and it was just so tactical and, and actionable. It was just a yeah, really fascinating read. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's interesting with him because, you know, you would think it'd be a product to a tech guy who thinks like that, <laughs> but he brings a lot of that, that sort of thinking that founders would bring, but it brings that to the organizations that he, he sort of embeds himself in. So impressive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's switch gears here and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So to start things off, could you just explain to us the problem that you solve and then we can dive into how you solve that problem? Yeah, so the problem we solve is we provide APIs for developers to build um, real-time experiences. And so real-time experiences are things like food delivery, you know, tracking order. It might be live chat, collaborating on a document like Google Docs, playing games, you know, a lot of sports events like commentary and those sort of things. You know, for us, we see them all as part of the real-time experience. It's this, you know, change between a, a static web where you kind of load an interface and, and that's it until you interact with it with, as opposed to 
sort of live interaction with other people or data or things that are happening around you in the world. And so we describe ourselves as a real-time experience platform. We provide sort of some low-level APIs that are just, you know, developers can kind of embed into their applications. We also provide some high-level APIs. So if you're thinking of like chat, things that are more tailored to what chat sort of API, you know, chat problem spaces. And in order to do this, we really had to kind of solve quite a few problems because a large part of what makes up a real-time experience is this idea that, you know, humans perceive things, anything, you know, if you were looking at two windows on your on your screen at the same time and, and you were moving a mouse around, you know, anything under 100 milliseconds, it, it would look like it's in real time, like everything's in sync. And as soon as it goes greater than 100 milliseconds, you start to notice the lag. And so for us, everything we've engineered has been thinking about how do we keep that experience under 100 milliseconds? So it feels like a real-time experience, feels like you're collaborating with other people. And so to do that, we've kind of, you know, we can't circumvent the sort of physics and the speed of light. So if you're in Australia and you're interacting with another user in Australia, then you can't have your data being transferred to the US and back, right? So you have to have data centers, a bit like CDMs, you have to have points of presence globally where, you know, users connect and, and data flows through those points of presence. So, you know, one of the biggest challenges really we've had is how do we build a, a globally distributed system that ensures that, you know, users connect always to a pop that's close to them. And so, you know, why that's important is that developers shouldn't have to think about that, right? Developers shouldn't have to think about how do I solve those low latency problems? How do I do things at scale? You know, they just want to use an API. So kind of, was, you know, it's a bit like the Stripe example I was talking about earlier. Developers didn't want to think about you know, merchant accounts and all these sort of things that we used to have to deal with. They just want to call an API and build a credit card, right? And, you know, for us, it's the same thing. You know, people are building these real-time experiences and they don't really want to think about those lower level problems. It's not that developers can't solve those problems. It's just that they don't need to solve those problems and we can solve them for them. So yeah, that's what we do. I mean, you know, probably a lot of your readers may not have heard of us, but that's because we're sort of, I quite like the fact that we're sort of you know, under the hood, powering a lot of other services I and mean, reaching reaching a few hundred million people a month now with that technology. And, you know, we're powering sort of brands that probably your your audience would have used, companies like HubSpot, um, Expedia, Webflow, Toyota, things like that. And, you know, for all of those companies, it's it's powering things like chat collaboration, audience engagement. That makes me think a little bit about Oracle. I think Oracle is also one of those companies that's very much behind the scenes. You know, obviously they're in the media sometimes just because of their size or because Larry Ellison does something obnoxious. But for the most part, the average person has no clue, you know, what Oracle is and, and what Oracle does, but they obviously play a critical role in, you know, a lot of different technologies. So it sounds very similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think obviously the the analogy with Oracle, it's I always think of sort of this this in many ways a sort of legacy technology company but you know they they keep surprising and uh, i mean surprising me in terms of how much they continue to evolve and grow and deliver stuff so even though they sort of been around for a long time i think i mean not quite the success story of something like microsoft they did such an amazing turnaround but certainly oracle are you know staying relevant right yep now take us back to 2013 when you first founded the company what was it about this problem specifically that made you say, okay, that's it. Let's go build a company around this. Because I'm sure you know, as an entrepreneur, you probably had a lot of different ideas, right? And different problems you wanted to solve. So what was it about this problem specifically that said, this is it? Yeah, it's good. Good points about I had lots of ideas. So what happened was I just sold e-consultancy and I spent about a few months thinking that I was going to uh, not work again and retire. And got bored within about literally about a month. 
I don't quite know how I thought that was a viable idea. So I then, you know, I was kind of at home and I started just playing around with various different business ideas. So I kind of, I spoke to quite a few friends and business colleagues just to kind of see what other ideas they had as well. And I started prototyping various different um, B2B, B2C ideas and everything from dating apps to a backlog management tool. And what I found was that at the time I was trying to think about how do these apps stand out from other services that existed at the time. And really for me, what I started to narrow in on was if you could create more collaborative live experiences, it would stand out. And of course, companies like Google really showed this with Google Docs, right? They, they, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember when Google Docs first came out, it was very, very simple. I mean, compared to Microsoft Office, it was very naughty. But what it did, one thing that was amazingly good was it worked in the browser and it was collaborative and you can work with other people and documents at the same time. And that one thing made it stand out from an amazingly established product, Microsoft Office. So, you know, I started to kind of narrow in on this. I believe that the real-time collaborative experience was important. I started using various different open source technologies that existed. There were a few cloud services, but they were all kind of born out of this idea that what Google had done with Gmail Gmail was probably the first company that stood out in terms of making the web real time. And what they did is they hacked some web technologies. They, you know, did something which basically called ACTP polling. So, and there was no way of communicating to the browser, but the browser would just continuously poll the server and say, Hey, is the new mail? Is the new mail? Is the new mail? Eventually the server respond, Yeah, we've got some new mail. And that model kind of worked in the sort of for the idea of if you're just delivering notifications, then that's perfect, right? Like if it takes a little bit longer to get a response, it doesn't really matter. It's just a notification. If things arrive slightly out of order because you've sent multiple ATG requests, well, it doesn't really matter because they're just notifications. And so what I found at the time when I was embedding other real-time technologies is they were all built around the same premise, which is you're delivering notifications and it doesn't need to be mission critical. And my belief was that, well, actually, if you want to deliver like a Google Docs type experience, you can't, you have to be able to depend on the transport in the same way that no engineer is questioning whether TCPR key works, right? Like they just know that under the browser or under their, their application, you know, a TCPR connection is created and it either succeeds or fails. And that's the space you want to work in as a developer that you can just trust that it does what it says. Whereas, you know, the existing web, I mean, real-time technology existed, they you couldn't get those sort of guarantees, right? You weren't sure that messages arrived. You weren't sure that the notifications arrived. You weren't even sure they arrived in order. And so that was kind of what I set out to kind of solve. Well, I was thinking, well, if if I'm approaching, if I'm you know hitting these problems myself constantly in all the different applications I'm building, then surely there's an opportunity here to kind of solve this for other developers. And that's kind of when I met my co-founder. You know, I'd been a sort of CTO my whole life, and well, I say whole life, my whole sort of professional career in the UK. And thought I was, you know, I kind of had a good understanding of engineering, but I very quickly realized as soon as it moves into the sort of distributed systems, it requires a very different level of technical debt. And so I met my co-founder and we started tackling how to solve this problem. And it, and it was a very hard problem to solve. It, it took us, I think about three, three and a half years to build the system before we came to market. Um, certainly not something any um, business book would recommend, taking three and a half years to get your first product out. But, you know, in a way that's kind of what's been our you know, barrier to entry for other, other competitors is that it's a very hard problem to solve to be able to provide low latency kind of service to, to developers that they can depend on in terms of guaranteed, you know, if you send an update in like a Google Doc, you're guaranteed that it'll arrive in order and, and you don't end up having two users 
you know, potentially editing a document where what they're seeing diverges. So that's kind of the story. And um, yeah, we launched in about 2016. And it's been a very interesting journey, really, in that what we found is that we thought we'd have a very large spread of lots of very small developers paying us $10 a month and you know a couple of big customers paying us a lot of money because they're operating at scale. And what we found actually was that the larger companies or people doing things at scale really valued the sort of integrity that we can provide, right? So it matters more when you're a larger company that we can provide the scale, that we can provide that integrity. So we kind of ended up in the space where you know a lot of our customers are really operating in a true internet scale. And it's nice to be sort of powering that. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. When I look on your website, I see a few big logos or a lot of big logos, but just to call out a couple of them. So you have Toyota, Verizon, HubSpot, a bunch of others. Obviously, every founder dreams of having you know these big enterprise logos on their websites. But obviously, in the early days, it, it's hard to, to land logos like that. It, it's hard to get a big enterprise to give you a shot. What was that like for you? And maybe take us back and talk through some of those first big deals that you were able to land. How'd you pull it off? There were a few tactics we used. <laughs> One of them was, you know, I believe that the way to to get some presence when you're sort of very small is to piggyback on the work that other competitors have done. So, you know, one of the, the early tricks we did, and I say a trick, but it's just, it's when you're smaller, you can, you can use these sort of techniques is, you know, we knew people would be searching for alternatives of an established provider, right? And, you know, as long as we can rank as, you know, organically as a result for that, that Immediately, a developer, you know, if you're ranking, that gives them some trust that they they've come across a credible player. And you know, really, what we did is we differentiated on technology. Right? We were we had incredibly detailed documentation. We really stood behind like how we designed the system and showed that off. We didn't kind of hide that. And what we found was like there's a lot of sort of hyperbole, right? Like every every company is going to say I'm better than you, but you know, or better than the competitor at least, but. We know what we we realized was actually it's far better to talk about the stats, like the the performance of the system. So we came up with this thing called like the four pillars of dependability, and we define how the platform performs. So instead of saying to a developer, you know, our platform is better than a competitor, whichever competitor you compare us against, we would rather say, here's the performance of our system. You know, here's the metrics that you can depend on. Here's the latencies you can depend on wherever you are in the world. And that kind of puts you in a space where developers can trust you because that's kind of what developers want. They want an authentic, you know, they want to buy from other authentic developers. So that was kind of at least one of the things that we did that helped us. I think our first enterprise customer was CA Technologies, Computer Associates. It was inbound. I mean, most of our customers have come inbound. So again, it's a bit like the Stripe story. A developer goes, tries the product, you know, prefers our product to one of the competitor products, whether that's the experience they had with it or whether it's because of um, you know, the properties, the sort of performance of the system. And it kind of goes up to a CTO type person in the organization who needs to approve it. And you know, it was in the early days, I think a lot of developers put a lot of trust in us. <laughs> we didn't have the track record. We had the technical chops and the sort of the evidence that we could kind of show that we had designed things the right way, but we didn't have the track record. And I mean, it's quite amazing that sort of journey that we've gone through. 
And, you know, I think it's always a challenge to get your first few customers. I think what we did that helped build trust is we were human and we spoke to them and we kind of gave them our time and we helped them design, you know, architect how they would use Ably within their products. And that gave them a level of confidence. So, um, yeah, that's the journey. And where are you today in terms of growth and adoption? Are there any numbers or metrics that you're okay with sharing? So in terms of sort of the journey where, you know, we raised our Series B about two years ago. I mean, in terms of adoption metrics, the things we can talk about is volume. So, you know, we, we deliver, I think about six, 700 billion messages a month now um, wow. to about 350 million users. I think, you know, in some ways we're still early stage and in other ways we're mature. And <laughs> it may sound strange, but we started off thinking about building Ably as a sort of low level set of APIs that developers could build any sort of solution that they want. So if you think of, I mean, really, it's quite crazy the types of things people build on Ably. We have one company who does an air traffic and drone control system through to, you know, companies like HubSpot or Toyota actually use us in racing. So telemetry and things like that. So what we did is we kind of provide these low level APIs and this kind of allowed anyone to build any kind of real time experience. So in that regard, we're quite mature in the journey because we've built something that truly differentiates, very scalable. And I'd say we've got product market fits in that regard. But what we found is that a lot of developers aren't necessarily thinking about, I need a low level capability. What they're actually thinking is, I want to add chat to my application, or I want to add collaboration, or I want to add you know, asset tracking because I want to show where the driver is. And so what we were a little bit earlier in the journey in that regard is, we're starting to build products that are, well, APIs, sets that are really focused on specific use cases. So if you're building chats, we'll give you a very specific set of APIs for that. We've got an asset tracking product specifically designed for delivery companies. So it gives them all the APIs for that. You know, we just about to launch in the next month, a collaboration product, which we're calling Spaces. And that has a set of APIs that is specifically around like showing where live cursors are, where, you know, which things you're editing at the same time. So they're kind of thinking like the Google Doc type experience. So that's where we're kind of, you know, a little bit earlier in the journey in terms of starting to have these more use case specific product offerings. When it comes to market category, what are your thoughts there? Is this a category creation play where you're creating a new category or is this really just reimagining and transforming and disrupting an existing legacy category? No, I mean, the low level sort of provide, you know, offer we have today, which is our channels product. So it's this, you know, effectively a pub sub capability with a whole bunch of functionality on top. That really is a, is, is more of a product category creation. You know, we've been, we have been working with Gartner on this and they put us into a category we don't really agree with. And I think that's because they see us as just part of the pub sub messaging space. Whereas actually the reality is. Yes, we happen to be PubSub under the hood, but what we're doing is helping developers build real-time you know, experiences and applications. So in that regard, it is a category creation story, which has been challenging because that's part of the problem we have with developers, right? The, the first thing a developer thinks when they try to solve one of these problems is, you know, they, they kind of start looking at their own tech stack and seeing whether they can, I don't know, add WebSocket support or something like that to the existing tech stack and build these things. Because, you know, unlike Stripe, <laughs> where you know you're not going to build your own payment provider, you know, in this real-time space, there isn't this defined category as such. I think as we move up the stack, though, it's a bit easier, right? You know, most developers know that there are APIs to build chat. They know that there are APIs to do location services, and they start to do that research. So I think that's where things are changing for us, yeah. How have you seen your messaging and positioning evolve over the last 
maybe 12 months. A lot of the founders that I've spoken to, they said that, you know, the message that was resonating with the market 12 or 18 months ago isn't the message that's resonating today. Have you seen something similar or what's been your experience so far with your messaging? I think for us as a company, I would say we're less affected by what's happening around in the market. I mean, I think one of the shifts is there's definitely more sensitivity to cost effectiveness, which maybe we probably wasn't as much of the message before. You know, the reality is that in a rapidly booming time, you know, what you're saying to developers and and organizations is our product helps you move quicker, right? So if you want to grow your business, capture more of the market, you use Ably because it's going to, you know, within days or weeks, you can have a product up and running as opposed to months or years. In this market, it's it's more about you could do this yourself, but it's going to cost you a lot more in terms of, you know, the resources you have. So your headcount is going to probably cost you orders of magnitude more than what you're going to pay in our service. And so there is a slightly different story. But I think for us, the biggest change is that we have really focused more on on developers. So, you know, in the last few years, we've we've tried, you know, selling to the, I suppose, the more commercial person in the organization, going in sort of top down and doing that selling. Um, but the reality is we're a developer product. And, and our biggest advocates, our biggest champions will always be developers. So that, you know, the shift for us has been more back towards what we started. We started very much a pure PLG developer-first organization focused entirely on getting developers in, trying the product, seeing the value in it, and then later, you know, potentially having that expand opportunity because they're a bigger organization. We're kind of rotating back to that, which is our roots, and it's working really well. So, you know, for us, what that means is we're more authentic because that's kind of what developers want. And I say authentic in terms of just clear communication, not like obfuscating anything, like very open about any uptime issues we've had or incidents, because that gives confidence to developers that we're honest and we're showing them what we're doing. And, you know, I think we're kind of taking this approach of we're experts in our domain, but we're humble, right? Like we still understand that we don't know everything, you know, uh, but we are experts in our domain. And, you know, I think kind of what I'd mentioned about earlier, the sort of approach you took of the four pillars, we believe like we don't tell developers, we show developers. So, Instead of claiming we're better at something, we show them what we can do and let developers, you know, developers are sort of, I think, a unique segment in that developers naturally have curiosity. They want to kind of get to the answer themselves. I don't think they want to be told the answer. So, um, you know, for us, it's about giving them the information they need and let them make that decision. What a guest told me a, a few weeks ago is that developers are allergic to marketing. They can see right through, you know, bullshit. They can see right through, you know, copy. Like they just want to know exactly what the product can do. And it, and how it can help them. And then they want to you know, work through the, the problem themselves or work through the product themselves. So sounds very similar to what you're describing. Yeah, it's exactly it, right? I mean, we have to always try and tone down anyone who puts any sort of any messaging in that kind of tries to make it sound like we're you know, better than another offering because we don't know, right? <laughs> we don't know, they're, you know what, what they're comparing us against. They want to do that exercise. They want to do the comparison between the products. Um, we just want to make sure they can kind of get to that. So yeah, absolutely, they are allergic. But, you know, the, the thing that I'd say about developers, which is interesting, is that you'll also hear that developers never want to talk to salespeople, and that's not true at all. Developers just don't want to be approached by salespeople. You know, developers will love to talk to salespeople once they understand that they value the product and they want to buy the product. So it's not that they don't want to talk to people. They just don't want to be approached. Like a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Now, let's talk a little bit about money and and funding. So as I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised $82 million or over $82 million so far. Can you talk to us just about lessons that you've learned about fundraising throughout this journey? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the last funding round was 
I'd say close to the peak of, of, you know, in the tech space in terms of, well, lots of cheap money, really. So, you know, our series A and our seed rounds were both, I'd say, quite challenging. I mean, seed, especially so. You know, everything we heard at seed round was, well, what are you going to do if Amazon does what you do? What are you going to do if Google does what you do? And I kind of always sort of laugh because you think, well, what is any business going to do if Amazon does what you do? Um, you know, and I think the lesson there is that it was, you know, like any company that goes up against Amazon and the likes, it's about being quite narrow focused and being very clear what you're doing and passionate about it. I think is how you beat the cloud vendors. You don't try and compete against by building a big portfolio of products and competing against them because you'll never be able to do that at scale. So, you know, I think for Seed, it was very much, we've managed to find investors who believed in us and believed in what we're doing and, and we're willing to take the punt. I think with Series A, we had sort of, you know, really had some, at least a track record of some enterprise customers, but it was still, I think, still quite challenging in terms of having sufficient funding for where our ambition lay. <laughs> Whereas with the Series B, we had very solid metrics. I mean, things, you know, at this time of Series B, we had, you know, we had very good growth. I think what we had was exceptional um, net revenue retention. And that was, you know, it's really powered by two things. We had a bunch of customers who integrate us into their product who, in the old days, we used to worry because we wouldn't hear back from them. But the reality is what it was, was that they were building, you know, integrating our product. It just worked. And it meant they could move on to the next challenge. And what that also meant is we just got naturally, you know, consumption just continued to increase because they'll continuously embed us in other parts of the product. A lot of the businesses that were buying us were kind of rapidly scaling organizations as well. And then, of course, with COVID, we got acceleration as well then because a lot of businesses were moving online. And so, you know, we were able to kind of help some legacy businesses, but also other businesses that were just thriving in this environment. So it was, you know, for me, Series B was probably the easiest round for us, but it was because we were, you know, we just had incredibly solid numbers that, that backed it. So I think, you know, the early days, it was very much, you know, I think the investors believe in the people, right? The leaders. And, you know, that, that was what we sold. We sold the story, our track record in previous businesses. And that's kind of what you have to get them to buy into. I think in later stages, the reality is you have to focus on getting healthy SaaS metrics. I mean, that is what we stay on top of all the time. And, you know, for us, for our next funding round, we're that is what we focused on too, right? We want to be in a place where, you know, capital efficiency is now suddenly something that every investor will talk about, which we just didn't hear about two years ago. I mean, it would be mentioned, but it wouldn't be paid attention. It was kind of growth at all costs. And now pretty much every investor is looking for a different set of metrics. They want a business that has some route to profitability, may not have to, may not be profitable at the time, but definitely has a route to profitability. You know, you can't have crazy acquisition costs that mean you don't have a sustainable business. And generally, you just have to be capital efficient, right? So that you, again, have this path that, you know, as the growth continues, you will eventually become a profitable business. Now, let's just imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything that you've learned so far building the company, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? I mean, it's probably quite unique to a developer-first business, but I would have said investing more in the community. You know, developer community is much like any other social community. You've got developers talking about a product um, as long as we, if you can get developers acting as advocates for you and going out to events and talking about your product or even presenting things at events, you know, chatting about things on Twitter, your rate of acceleration, your growth is, is, is going to be far quicker. I mean, we, we did invest in community, but I don't, think, I don't think it was our primary goal. I think our primary goal was let's build an amazing product and let's make sure it delivers what it says and is measurably better than, than everything else that's out there. But quite frankly, that's not enough. Like you need... You need developers to understand that and to be 
you know, taking that to the community. So I think the lesson I, I think that, yeah, the thing I would have, the advice I would have given myself was to kind of have a, a more social strategy, a developer social strategy from day one and get more engagement in the product from, from the community. Final question for you, since we're almost up on time here, let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's that big picture vision that you're building? I mean, for us, you know, we believe that, you know, real-time experience is quite a broad area. And what we envisage is that, you know, today, if you go and build a chat API, for example, you're really only solving one bit of of the real-time experience problem that consumers expect. Like consumers just now expect everything to be in real time. They expect you to kind of have notifications and to be able to collaborate and see other people editing things and to be able to chat to people and all of these things. And our, what we believe is that if you kind of, as an organization, if you start delivering some part of a real-time experience, then your, your customer is going to suddenly expect that everything becomes real-time. And you know, our vision for the future is that you come to Ably for one thing. So you come because you need chat, but you, you stay with Ably because you provide all of those components within the real-time experience space. And you know, I think if we can capture that, I think what we do then is we differentiate from the point solution. So, you know, we probably will never be as good as the best chat API provider that's out there because that's all they focus on. But as a company, if you're going to be, you know, dipping your toe into, well, I need to start adding real-time experiences into my applications, you know that if you come to Ably, you know, we'll have a, a very credible chat offering. But what we also have is, a, a, you know, functionality to kind of do your location tracking and do notifications and enable collaboration. And I think that's a very very compelling offering. And if you look at companies like Stripe, going back to the Collison brothers again, it's kind of what they did. They started with payments. I mean, that's all they did and they did an incredibly good job at that. And now they've really broadened out into everything to do with the sort of internet commerce space, right? So everything from fraud detection to invoicing and billing, you know, it's a pretty broad offering. And I think it's the same for us. We don't want to, we don't want to broaden our focus away from real-time experiences. We want to think about everything that you would be doing in the real-time experience space and provide a sort of unified set of APIs to do that. It's quite exciting that we're reaching hundreds of millions of people. You know, I think the thing that really excites me personally is, is the idea that, you know, we started this company, my co-founder and I, I think, you know, we had some big visions, I mean, big aspirations for what we wanted to do. But the fact that we're kind of approaching half a billion people, I think if we can kind of get into the billions of people sort of territory, then I think that's quite a nice, like as a founder. I think knowing that we're sort of, I don't know, 20, 30% of the planet are relying on technology that we've been providing would be something that, you know, I think in the next three to five years will be amazing to kind of have that achievement. Amazing. I love the vision, love how you're building. And I really love the the approach that you're taking here and the problem that you're solving. Matthew, we are up on time, so we will have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in and just want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Just go to ably.com, A-B-L-Y.com, and uh, have a look. And I'm on Twitter under Matthew Arid, and I'll uh, <laughs> have a look at the notes of the document because my surname is hard to spell, but uh, yeah, please do follow along. <laughs> yeah, as I was preparing for the interview, I was trying to figure out how to say it, and I found a few different inter- interviews. Everyone was saying it differently, so that was why I avoided saying your last name at the start. It was a bit confusing. <laughs> we'll, we'll link to it in the show notes so people can find it easily. Matthew, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. This was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. All right. Keep in touch. Yeah.
This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 